got a lot to say about the world I occupy every day. But when I say what's on my mind, I find I piss people off. You're listening to What the Folk, real talk and raw tunes for revelationary times. I'm Emily Yates. And I'm Sarah Baranowskis. Happy episode 15 of What the Folk. Today we're joined by Dr. Matthew Heitman, a historian, educator, writer, and union organizer. That's essentially the narrative that we're fed, right? I mean, that's that's the kind of stuff we are taught to believe, that we are the force of good. And, you know, from generation to generation passed on, pretty much, is, is the narrative that, you know, we can do no wrong. We're there to protect uh, freedom and democracy in the world, right? But the fact that we... Uh, going to cahoots with uh, essentially, you know, anti-democratic dictators, you know, who uh, commit heinous crimes against humanity and, you know, violate human rights on the daily doesn't seem to be something that we're aware of as a as a society, as a culture. All that and even more fun conversation with Dr. Matt Heitman in a minute. But first, if you have been enjoying What the Folk and all of the affable weirdness that we've been throwing at you here, please think about rating and reviewing us on your favorite platform like iTunes or wherever and uh, telling all your friends about us. Now we're going to get things started off with a song of mine called the Foreign Policy Folk Song that will hopefully set the appropriate tone. You're our brave new leader You're gonna run our country But before you get started There's something you should know We built a reputation to take over every nation And if they try to stop us We'll bomb, 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 bomb their country Just bomb their country is a historian, educator, writer, and union organizer. He got his PhD in history from Stony Brook University, and he's currently an adjunct professor of history at Suffolk Community College in Long Island, New York. His research focuses on American progressivism, conservatism, and capitalism during the late 19th and early 20th centuries. He occasionally writes about topics relating to history, politics, and political culture, and his writing has appeared in Roar Magazine, Truth Out, and even in the Washington Post. First of all, how is life treating you in the pandemic? Yeah, I mean, you know, how's life during the pandemic? I think you can relate to that. We're all kind of confined at home. We're all looking at the, I don't know, second or third wave now. I have no idea. I lost, I lost track, to be honest. And uh, it's, you know, it's definitely something that I never thought I would experience as such. It's definitely definitely unique, you know, to, to say the least. It, it feels surreal, right? Being at home all the time, not being able to go out and see people and, you know, especially, you know, from a professional perspective, not being able to teach in person, you know, used to that. I'm not really into online teaching, but I think, you know, we all more or less have to transition into this. It's definitely been a learning curve, I would say. So, you know, I, I wasn't actually teaching when this whole thing unfolded, when the pandemic started. You know, I was taking a sabbatical and I was focusing on finishing my dissertation and, you know, wrapping up and getting that PhD in the wraps. Yeah. And that's when it all hit. And, uh, you know, I had to very quickly 
become essentially a homeschool teacher for my son. And uh, yeah, think about what's going to happen once I do go back to teaching. It went pretty well. Uh, I think the schools that I'm or I was affiliated with at the time did a decent job transitioning to online instruction. But then again, you know, I'm in the greater New York area, so we were hit hard by the pandemic in, in March and April. So that was really, you know, really something. It wasn't much of a choice for the schools to kind of do anything. They had to go to remote learning, right? So I think they did a, a decent job, of course, pushed by, you know, union activists as well to take precautions and all those things. But I think it went fairly well. It was um, definitely, you know, a, a, <laughs> a learning curve, as I said. Yeah, I don't know. I think I'm... I'm not struggling with it as much as some other people are. So I'm kind of actually grateful for, you know, being able to experience this as, as weird as that sounds. Yeah. No, I think this is an interesting time where um, it's definitely made me grateful for some kind of the more immediate things in my life. It sounds like y'all were just shut all together um, and just online because you did like a weird hybrid thing where they were doing some in-person classes and then they had to shut down and then they had to shut down again. So it's been like a yo-yo kind of roller coaster at CU Boulder, but we're out in Colorado. The, the community college where I teach, they actually went to full on remote. I think there's very few classes that are actually happening in person. What I, what I did do is I, I, I insisted on live teaching. That's something I didn't want to miss out on because a lot of universities and schools kind of went to asynchronous teaching. For me personally, that's not really something I want to do. Like I insisted, and I said, you know, I, if I'm teaching remotely, it's going to be live in real time. So um, I insisted on my courses being, being live, and uh, I think it works out well. I mean, you know, we all live on Zoom now, more or less, right? There's definitely <laughs> Zoom fatigue. I mean, you know, you, you can probably attest to that too. But I think students prefer that kind of direct contact with their professor, you know, like that direct personal kind of, uh, you know, face-to-face -face relationship, even if it's virtual, um, you know, rather than being assigned a bunch of work and having to complete that by a certain point in time and then, you know, not really getting much contact out of it. So I think this is uh, this is still doable. It's the best we can do, you know, uh, other than in-person teaching. Yeah, it still kind of gives that human connection. I would love to hear about your story and sort of how you got interested in studying American history and sort of the perspective you have having, you know, studied in all these different countries. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a long story. How much time do we have? I mean, we have as much time as you want. So, What is time, really? Okay, yeah, I mean, time is a social construct. Right? We, exactly. we can agree on that. But um, <laughs> in terms of measurable time, you know, commodified time, uh, I've studied and lived in lots of different places. So, you know, I was born in East Germany, so behind the Iron Curtain, right? that East-West divide, right? Having grown up there, you know, having you know, been born there and like having studied in East Germany, West Germany, in the United Kingdom, in the U.S., you know, all over the place, I do think that I have a different take on things, but I think it it allowed me to kind of see the world slightly different than, you know, most folks who are confined to like one area who have not traveled extensively, who haven't lived anywhere else. So I'm kind of grateful I got to do all of that and, you know, have that be my life essentially. But how I got into U.S. history and U.S. politics, I, I guess I got just sucked into it. You know, after the, the, the Berlin Wall fell and after the, the Cold War was over, I, I think I, I just got like so many people in the global East, you know, exposed to um, American cultural hegemony, I guess. This sort of notion that, you know, America is all about freedom and self-determination and this notion of being exceptional, right, on, on, on the world stage kind of, although not always in a good way. And I, I think I kind of got sucked into that and was, you know, enamored with it and, you know, just uh, intrigued by it. So I, I you know, started reading and studying early teenager years. And, you know, as a kid, I was, I was really enamored with it, but 
as I, as I got older and as I, you know, learned more and studied more and, uh, you know, question things more critically, uh, you see the, the cracks, right, in, in, in the narrative. You see through the matrix, for lack of a better term, you know, you, you question things and you become more critical. And especially when you get, you know, a, you know, a decent education, which I was fortunate enough to, to obtain, you kind of have more questions and, you know, you, you become more interested in things that are not necessarily popularized, right, that, that you're not taught in, in school or in college. So you kind of dig into those things and uh, you find out that actually there's a different story to all of this. Yeah, let's explore that more. You know, that's that's kind of how I got into it. And uh, having studied in the UK, you know, that's a totally different system to the US. So when I uh, started grad school in the US, I had to basically learn everything anew, you know, because uh, it is vastly different. But once again, you know, it's uh, I was able to, to use that kind of perspective to, to kind of take a step back and say, OK, so this is how we're told to feel about something. But what does that actually mean in context? And what does that mean from a, a different, more globalist perspective, right? So because here in America, we're kind of still in this day and age, very often like cut off. And we, we get this kind of, you know, prefab uh, mentality. And we're fed this sort of narrative, this grand narrative about ourselves and who we are and what we stand for. And that's not necessarily how the rest of the world sees us, right? And uh, especially in, in what we call the global south, right? People have a different opinion on Americans, on America, um, you know, on American hegemony and, you know, uh, cultural imperialism and all those things. This is what opened up for me, you know, the, the, the avenue to kind of want to study this more and eventually go to grad school and pursue, you know, a PhD on it. So I, I must have, I, I always tell people, when they want to go to grad school, uh, first of all, don't do it because it takes so much time and effort and so much toll on you and your relationships and, you know, your your existence as a human being. But if you do, then pick your topics and pick your, your the stuff that you want to study wisely because you either have to absolutely love it or absolutely hate it in order to stick with it and, and see it through. I think I went from kind of a, you know, a love-hate relationship to kind of a very critical thinking relationship with you know, American culture and politics and history. So I really relate to that as uh, someone who went in to study the history and politics of the Middle East after having been part of the occupying force of Iraq. I went from also being a, kind of in a love-hate relationship with, with what I thought I knew to to a much more like, but what is really at the root of this attitude like oh it's it's just a, a power uh, a power struggle one where we're we're not the good guys like we want to say we are whoops sorry not sorry <laughs> right but that, that's essentially the narrative that we're fed right i mean that's that's the kind of stuff we are taught to believe that we are the force of good and you know from generation to generation passed on pretty much is is the narrative that you know we can do no wrong we're there to protect uh, freedom and democracy in the world, right? But the fact that we uh, go into cahoots with uh, essentially, you know, anti-democratic dictators, you know, who uh, commit heinous crimes against humanity and, you know, violate human rights on the daily doesn't seem to be something that we're aware of as a, as a society, as a culture, right? So that's something we are not taught. We're not, we, we don't talk about enough. So that's why, that's one of the many reasons why it's important that people get a good education, right? Uh, and that colleges are free and that, this is, an, you know, this is accessible to everyone and uh, so that people can get a broader, you know, kind of sense of what's going on, who we are and how we fit into this world. Yeah, we don't want to go thinking that we're the wrong Skywalker, you know, we don't want to go like identifying with the wrong side of the force. Like we need to at least learn enough to be able to properly understand where we fit into our popular culture. <laughs> yeah, that's a good way to put it. 
love to hear more about maybe some of your dissertation work. And I'm always really impressed whenever I read one of your pieces, like I feel like I learned so much about American electoral politics that I didn't even know about and sort of all these historical figures that have just been completely struck down from our history and we never talk about that. So I would love to hear a little bit more about that work and how you see it relating to the current moment we're in now. Yeah. Um, so one of the things I always try to do in, in both my, my, my teaching and my research is I'm trying to somewhat relate the, the things that I study to the present. I think very often there's a disconnect in studying and also teaching history that makes people not want to engage with the subject. I mean, you know, history, most people have this kind of idea of history as this dusty subject that's kind of boring, that's memorizing, you know, names and dates and facts and battles and wars and stuff like that. When actually it's really interesting. It's, it's about, you know, studying change over time, studying people and ideas and context and figuring out, you know, what has happened? How do we arrive at this moment where we are today, what led us to this point, right? So I, I always try to make those connections. My research is primarily in the, the later 19th century, early 20th century. So what we'd call the, the progressive era in American history, right? You know, Theodore Roosevelt and all that stuff. I study kind of the connection between, you know, political culture, capitalism, reform, uh, conservatism, and, and, and especially focusing on this concept of what I call conservative reform, which is not necessarily a new concept, but it's a concept that needs to be, you know, assessed a little bit more and, and, and analyzed a little bit more because it is still all around us, right? When we talk about reform in America or any step forward that we take here, it's always, you know, deeply mired and steeped in conservative uh, thought and ideology, right? I mean, you guys know this, but the average American may not so much. Our political culture gravitates very far to the right by default, Right? There's, there's very little leftist thought that we have in our national politics and our political culture. And basically, our entire political discourse happens on the far right or center right of the political spectrum. And that has gotten worse over the past decades. So with that in mind, you know, what I, what I look at is the role of essentially conservative politicians in the later 19th century and the early 20th century, and how despite their rhetoric of, you know, conservatism, of, you know, pro-corporate policies, of anti-reform, they were still part and parcel of concerted incremental reform, and they were doing so because they wanted to preserve the very system that afforded them their privileges and their prestige and their money and their power and their influence, right? So they were trying to basically save capitalism from itself. They were trying to make capitalism more endurable, and they were trying to give a little in order to not lose a lot, Right, if that makes sense. So that's that's the, the concept of conservative reform, incremental piecemeal legislation that seems to move the needle forward just a little bit while not really giving up much power at all. And that's kind of what we see still to this very day. So yeah, I look at all these figures, you know, uh, uh, congressional conservatives uh, at that time who were, you know, front and center in those in those debates and who, if we remember them at all, we remember them as, you know, staunch conservatives. But actually they were kind of more or less you know, in the middle, in, in the center that's more amenable to, to reform, right, despite the rhetoric. I look at people like uh, Nelson Aldrich, who was a senator from Rhode Island, actually, who was kind of one of the masterminds behind the Federal Reserve. That's something that people only recently focused a little bit more on. I also look at people like, you know, John Spooner, who was a senator from Wisconsin. We think of Bob LaFollette from Wisconsin, right, as the progressive firebrand. Um, but Spooner, as a conservative, as a railroad lawyer, as a corporate spokesperson, essentially, you know, was 
front and center in these reform debates and actually worked on the Pure Foods and Drugs Act, for example, or worked on the, the Hepburn um, Act to kind of uh, regulate railroad activity. You know, their roles have not been assessed really to the degree that they should be assessed because what they were doing was, as I said before, they were trying to make these reforms corporate friendly and first and foremost serve the interest of, of business, right? but also signaling to the public that, look, we're doing something to kind of mediate the situation, to kind of help you out and to kind of move all of us forward. Right? So under the guise of reform, what they're doing is essentially you know, propping up the capitalist system and basically defeating any sort of revolutionary sentiment uh, before it even gets started, before it takes root. So that's, that's kind of the idea behind it. Is to say an awful lot, not an awful lot with an awful lot of words. So that's my job. <laughs> that's, that's academia. I'm, you know, I, I just published a piece actually, and it was a blog piece and not, not a peer reviewed piece. But I was like, oh, this is very academic. How can I say this thing in the most words possible? <laughs> Whereas I'm like the folk singer over here. Like, how do I make this rhyme in three minutes? <laughs> if you find the secret to that, please share that with us because I would be, you know, totally interested in, uh, maybe harnessing that, um, especially for teaching purposes, you know, that'd be ideal. I'll see what I come up with by the time this episode, uh, gets, uh, gets put on the internet. That would be a fun challenge because I really do agree with you. We get so bogged down in partisan politics that we fail to notice how similar these parties are to each other when it comes down to it and how much is possible to get done within each of them, like for good or evil. You know, I've I've definitely thought about, you know, encouraging everyone I know to run for office as a Republican and just be who they are, you know, because ultimately the ideals that we're fighting for benefit everyone. And uh, if you don't if you don't couch it in all of this ridiculous rhetoric, you know, the Democrats are your friends and the Republicans are your enemies, vice versa. It's so much easier to just pay attention to who's actually doing the reforms and who's actually doing the really restrictive and oppressive legislation as well. Yeah, absolutely. I, I would always tell people, you know, look at policy, look at actual plans and what's implemented rather than rhetoric and rather than, you know, partisanship or even bipartisanship. And, you know, it's not so much about what is being said, but what's being done. Look at the track record. And, you know, I hate to quote Hillary Clinton, but she was right when she said this. You know, she said, uh, your record and what you say matters, right? So um, there's something to it. We're just looking at who votes for certain pieces of legislation, like the NDAA, for example, that they just passed, even though we can't afford to mm-hmm. give people apparently even $300 a week, but we can give the Pentagon right. over many billions of dollars but no one ever just looks into how people vote they look into like what is on brand for Mm -hmm. the side that i support basically right like i support the iraq war when it's the blue party that's championing it and i support the you know spending all of our money on the military instead of health care when it's a democrat telling us we have to we're putting kids in cages when, you know, the cages are built by a Democrat. Absolutely. We, we are, as Rick Shankman said, we are political animals, right? We have this Stone Age brain that basically doesn't allow us to think beyond, you know, these partisan labels and, and you know, the sort of team sport mentality where we subscribe to, oh, what's our team doing? What's our color doing, right? So really, we need to look beyond that and, and kind of ditch these labels and really look at what matters and how this would benefit people, you know, as a society, as a whole. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, like at its most beautiful, like the combination of the two parties is like purple. Yeah. Purple politics. The Prince Party. 
Seriously. I feel like Prince's ghost would do a better job running the country than literally anybody in charge right now. I would vote for Prince's ghost, 100%. And right. we could then refer to him as the president formerly known as Prince, so that's great. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I feel like if we were to to seriously run a campaign for Prince's ghost, the president formerly known as Prince, we would win. We probably <laughs> would. People are they're so fed up. They're like, none of the politicians who are alive have been doing anything for us. Maybe we should try someone from the afterlife. I'm not even convinced that all of the alive ones are technically alive. I think some of them are undead. Looks I think they're like walking dead, yeah? Very. Yeah. They certainly are. I mean, that's the very basis. That's the very, you know, uh, that's the crux of capitalism, right? Vampirism. Like, you know, it sucks you dry. It sucks your, your lifeblood out of you. And, you know, it's, that's what we are. So. Mm-hmm. For a culture that's, like, obsessed with vampires, why don't we see that as a collective? <laughs> We're like, but they're not sparkling. Yeah. <laughs> Don't get me started on that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I won't. Let's talk about war instead. <laughs> yeah, because we haven't talked enough about war in, in American history or American political culture. It's, it's, a, it's an understudied subject, right? That's That doesn't get a lot of attention. So. Yeah. Oh, man. Well, we could go in all the different directions with that because it's, of course, like completely studied and studied and studied, but through all of these problematic lenses and angles and never in the sense of like, hey, these wars don't actually stop. Yeah, I even remember, like, I never even really learned about the Vietnam War in school, but I had an uncle who was just mentally and physically ruined from the Vietnam War till the day he died. So that was what made me interested in reading. I remember doing, like, a school presentation on it, and everyone in my history class looking at me like I was nuts. Like, what are you talking about? I was wondering, what do you think about the fact that, like, our history is often denied to us as Americans or, like, purposely obfuscated? Did I, if I said that word right, I'm going to be really stoked. Yeah, I mean, you know, history, the, the thing about history is that it's, you know, inherently subjective, right? And it, it really depends on who tells the story. I mean, you know, a big part of history is the word story, right? That's the root of the word there. So it really depends on who does the storytelling and who controls the narrative. And unfortunately, you know, through most of our modern history, the narrative has been controlled by the people who came out, you know, on the other side doing well and, you know, holding the power and holding, you know, and enjoying privileges. So we don't tend to hear from voices that were marginalized throughout our history. We don't tend to hear those people really. And I think that's something that the profession has actually done pretty well in, in recent decades to kind of unearth and to kind of, you know, bring to the fore and to not focus so much on the master narratives about the wars and the presidents and the, you know, before that kings and queens and whatnot. Um, but actually listening to, uh, you know, real people, their stories and how that fit and how that related to the, the, the broader narratives. And so I think that's that's something that's been done pretty well in, in, in history as of late. But of course, yeah, it's still there's still a disconnect between how we study history, especially in, in academia and how we, you know, talk to one another about these these concepts and ideas and everything and how we talk to the public and how we talk to, you know, everyday people who may not have the pre-existing knowledge or the interest or the time to sit down and study all these things um, and how we communicate these findings and these ideas. And I think that's something that we can do a lot better in this country, but it has to start at a young age. We have to start early on telling a more holistic version of our history and uh, not teaching kids myths and and half-truths and founding myths and all all that stuff, right? Kids are not really taught 
history that well. They're taught to kind of remember certain narratives and to kind of very easily fall into traps of believing the kind of fairy tale narrative about America when in actuality that's so far from the truth, right? So I think we need to do a much better job there, like early on in education, but also how we as historians or how we as social scientists and what have you, you know, talk to the public about these issues, you know, uh, not talking down, but explaining and showing what's going on and what we're doing and why these things are important and where the holes are in the story. And there are many, many holes. You guys know this, but that's something we need to uh, focus on. So that's why I think it's important that historians, you know, write for a broader audience, not just for, you know, five or six people who uh, sit and read the period journal or who read the monograph, right? Um, But actually, you know, talking to people in a sense that these debates and these discussions can enter mass culture and mass discourse and make a difference. So I think that's something we we need to work on as a society. And that's kind of where I see myself working as a small light that I am and that, you know, working towards that. So that's, that's kind of my goal, make that connection better. It's really, it's important, all those things that you're saying, especially about uh, starting in youth, really getting under the skin of this misleading narrative of exceptionalism and good guys. It starts very young, you know, that, that starts very young. And it's frustrating, you know, I think even, you know, I've been doing anti-war work as a veteran for the last, like, 10 years of my life. And I still like can't entirely even get through to the people in my own family that you shouldn't thank veterans for their service because they didn't do anything to serve you. You should say, welcome home. How are you? And you should work to make it so that people don't have to join the military to get education and health care paid for. That's the way you let you acknowledge what people have been through in the war machine in this country. And I don't know, I'm, I'm just going to like tiny rant for a minute because it's like, I literally say every single chance I get, you know, the, the, the war machine isn't doing anybody a service and teaching kids to say, thank you, dear. Thank you, veterans. It's like, they're little kids. They don't know what they're saying. And you're teaching them to say things that are going to make them problematic adults and to make them completely misunderstand who we are as a country and as a culture. It's so pervasive, the conditioning in this country, that people can't even hear a counter to it when it comes from inside their own family. I would definitely agree with that. Um, I, I think it's... Uh it's it's problematic how we, you know, how we address these issues, how we talk to children about these issues, how we, like you said, you know, uh, teach them to revere the military, revere militarism and, you know, basically create and, and breed, you know, a culture of militarism and, and jingoism, quite frankly, you know, not even second guess that and, and don't even question the very premise of why we are going to wars all the time. Like, why are we in, in a constant state of emergency? Like, you know, that we, we seem to always have an enemy. And the fact that that's by design, that's it's created to be that way, right? It's, it's set up to be that way because that is how the war machine and how the uh, the masters of war, as Bob Dylan called them, right? Uh, how they work, how they, be- well, they how they benefit from from this from this setup. And yes, the negative effects on our culture and our our psyche, our political culture, 
are tremendous. And, and, you know, young children grow up thinking it's totally normal to be this militaristic and to have this huge military and to, you know, mindlessly and meaninglessly thank veterans for their service, but not actually doing anything to really help veterans right? and to help them, you know, work through the struggles when, when they come home um, to provide a better world for them to kind of, you know, be able to live a civilian life and, and not just for veterans, but, but for everybody, really, mm-hmm. you know, that, that we don't question how can we make this a society where, Maybe war is obsolete, but we don't have to produce right. veterans in the first place, right? Thank you. Um, we, don't, we don't do that. We we just we just put a band-aid on the wound and say, hey, thank you for your service. You know, that, that that's it. Um, until the next war, when we ship people abroad again to kind of fight for something, for an idea that most of us don't understand or our government is not clear about why, why we're there in case in point Vietnam, right. right? We're not even fighting for an idea. That's the whole thing. It's like, that's there. I'm sorry to interrupt. Like I, but that that's exactly it. Like people think they're fighting for freedom, this idea. And it's like, it is absolutely not true that anybody is fighting for anybody else's freedom. Unless you're talking about the freedom of the profiteers to keep profiting. This whole narrative around, you know, thanking veterans and thanking the police. The idea that it is something noble and heroic to put on a uniform and be owned by the government and be willing to point a weapon at somebody who has literally never done anything to you and have that be seen as heroic. Like, look at our culture. Just do a quick little inversion because we're like, right now we're on the wrong side. <laughs> I really appreciated your piece about not or encouraging kids to observe Veterans Day or to, you know, thank veterans for being veterans. Um, and I think it just speaks to what we've been saying. And, like, I would love to know some of your ideas for countering the narrative, um, you know, rather than just saying, let's not do this. Like, what what would you suggest we do instead for kids? Yeah, so, um, I mean, I don't exactly remember how, how much of that I laid out in that piece because it's, it's been uh, over a year, I think, now. But we just had Veterans Day again this year, like, you know, a couple of weeks ago, and I was thinking about it again, actually. And I maybe I should back up a little bit. The whole reason why this piece came about, because I'm not really an expert on, you know, uh, wars and militarism and veterans affairs, but I, I do, you know, study political culture to an extent. So this, this is kind of where this overlaps. Um, the way this came about was when my son came home with exercises about Veterans Day and, you know, uh, thanking veterans for the service. And, and I, I said to him, well, you know, how, what, what do you, what do you guys discuss in class? Like, how is this, you know, like what, what's going on? And he couldn't tell me anything. And I, I asked him again this year and, you know, I, I asked him, OK, so do you know what a veteran is? Do you know what they do? Do you know what the military is? Do you know why it's there and what the purpose is and everything? And he's a very smart kid, but he couldn't really tell me much about it, you know, rather than like other than just saying, oh, yeah, we're supposed to be grateful and thankful and they keep us safe. And that that's basically it. OK, but if we're doing that to children at age like seven or eight or something, you know, what we're creating there is this sort of ignorant culture that says, yeah, we need to follow this line of like thanking veterans for their service, but we don't really question, you know, why we're doing that. We don't really think about why we're doing that and thinking about the the outcomes. So what I would suggest people do, and this is what I do personally with my own son, is that, you know, I, I ask him, so do you know what this is all about? Do you know what this means? Do you know why this is the case, right? Why do we have a military? What do people in the military do? It, when he can't answer those questions, I try to fill him in and say, okay, look, you know, when, when, um, 
when there's a war or when there's like an attack on a country, the military is supposed to, you know, defend you. But in, in our history and in our context, that's not what happened most of the time, right? Most of our wars were not defensive wars. They were wars of aggression, uh, wars driven by, you know, capitalist gains, by, by imperialism, by, you know, vying for power and control globally. And so I think it's important to, at the very least, instill in kids the sense of war should be avoided, Right? We should not celebrate, celebrate and glorify wars and glorify militarism, but we should try and avoid that. Right? That should be like a last resort if you are under attack. But if that's not the case, we should you know, try our best to live in peace, to, to you know, create a peaceful society uh, uh, and to kind of solve problems before they uh, come up. Right? So to kind of be preemptive about it and, and, and not fall into those traps of having to react in a certain way and especially in, in, in a violent way. I try to like fill in those blanks, fill in those gaps and say, you know, wouldn't you rather live in a world that's peaceful, where people get along, where people can work together to create a better future rather than, you know, fighting one another to the death? Mm -hmm. Essentially for what? You know, for the the gains of other people who make, you know, benefit financially from this? I mean, how is this just, right? So I try to instill in him like a sense of justice and a sense of responsibility that we should avoid wars at all costs and we should look at militarism as a last resort if everything else fails, right? And I think if we do that, we yeah. create better fertile ground to kind of like take that message further. And then when they, I mean, they're still very young, but you know, at that age, there's only so much you can do. I understand that. But I think we're doing going about this the wrong way, starting with, mm. uh, you know, uh, reverence and, and, and obedience. It's creating this sort of militarist culture in which they're just blindly following a narrative. And rather than doing that, we should raise them to be more critical, to, to question more, to ask more questions and to, you know, try to, you know, want to know more rather than just right. gobbling up what they're fed and then believing in that, right? Also questioning the idea that militarism is ever a solution. You know, that if you are in a militarized culture, your culture is not evolved enough yet because everything has a solution. When we're resorting to violence, we're doing the opposite of finding a solution. The next phase of human development, human evolution will be past war. We'll just learn how to communicate well enough to where we're not ever resorting to violence. I think that the reason why kids are taught that militarism and war are good is because that's the best that people can come up with who are in charge of them. And they want to maintain power. The, the people at the top of our government and of our systems, like, they're basically just showing us how incompetent they are constantly because they look at militarism as any kind of solution, but it has, when it has literally never solved anything. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I, I would agree. And I, that's, that's one of the reasons why I, I kind of uh, went back to Eugene Debs in, in that piece to say, you know, like mm -hmm. also questioning the, the undemocratic nature of wars in general. When has there been a, a point in, in history when, human beings came together and said collectively, yes, let's go to war because it's for the benefit of all of us. Right? You'd be hard-pressed to find any of those instances. Uh, most of the time, it is ruling elites that make those decisions for their own gain, for their own benefit. And it's you know the, the average person, the, the working person, right? That fights the battles and that dies and you know lays down their lives and you know pays the ultimate price for this, for this sort of motive. Yeah, I think questioning the very, uh, you know, basis of, of why do we need wars in the first place.
you mentioned Eugene Dubbs, so this made me think of you. Um, you and Sarah were both involved with the Bernie campaign. Kind of curious where you see maybe the momentum of that movement, where it might fit in with electoral politics right now, or as something providing a counter to what's going on right now. I'd just love to hear your thoughts from having been involved on that campaign twice, like what you think, <laughs> if there's potential. <laughs> it's a bit of a sore subject because obviously, you know, yeah, you know, I'm, I was a Bernie supporter. You know, I, I still am in some ways. But as of late, of course, you know, it's, it's, it's a different tack that we're seeing. Bernie has been focused on basically defeating Trump. You guys know me. You know that I believe that Trump is just a symptom of things that are wrong with this country, not the cause. Right. I mean, I'm pissing off a lot of liberals. The point here is, that, <laughs> you know, uh, we, we need to move past this notion that Trump is the root of all evil, because really he's just, you know, the product of everything that went wrong. But um, yeah, so for me, Bernie was um, kind of inspiring. I'm not really into, I don't really, you know, donate my time or money to politicians because many I don't really find inspiring enough to actually do that. Many are too conciliatory. Many don't have the ideas that we need. And it's all about this sort of ecosystem of partisanship and, you know, uh, limited politics, you know, incremental reform. But Bernie, to me, kind of stuck out of this. That's why I got involved in the first place. And that's why I was you know, a supporter in, in, in 2016. And then again, uh, this time around. But I think as of late, he's been too much of a consensus seeker, too conciliatory, too much, you know, like giving up the momentum to an extent, right, that he built and that he helped build, that I, I'm not sure exactly where it's going to go. I know there's a, you know, a whole host of people who are coming or rising up in the ranks now. You know, there's the squad, there's, uh, you know, in recent elections, there have been a couple of more progressive people that have been elected to office. Funny enough, a lot of uh, people running on, you know, more leftist, you know, more socialist-leaning platforms. Contrary to popular belief, they actually did pretty well, whereas, you know, a lot of the centrists uh, had their asses handed to them in elections. So uh, I think the message here is clear. The American people want something that is different, you know, something that goes more, you know, forward in, in, in a different direction. And uh, I think people shouldn't shy away from, I think one of you mentioned this before, who we are and what we want. And, you know, uh, we should be clear and, and open about it the kind of things that we want to see in society rather than going back to the uh, the old partisan kind of rhetoric of hey, we're going to do this and we're going to do that and you know we need to restore things we don't need to restore shit we need to actually move forward and create a better world right restoring would just bring us back to the point in the past where we made the mistakes that led to the here and now and then you know if history is any indication we're doomed to you know do that again make those mistakes again that's that's how i see it but i, I think bernie has kind of being the political pragmatist that he is, kind of giving up, giving up some of that momentum and, you know, kind of uh, cash that in for trying to, trying to find a way out of the, the Trumpian moment. I don't know what that would do for him in the longer term in terms of political credibility and, uh, you know, what it will do to the movement that he helped create. So I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. But to me personally, I have to admit, Bernie is kind of a compromise already, you know, because... Yeah. Most Americans think Bernie is this sort of far leftist, you know, I belong <laughs> when, you know, you can I know. <laughs> and, you know, in, in, any, in any European uh, political system, uh, he would be a centrist at best, right? He would be right best. in the center there. Mm -hmm. So uh, it really just is reflective of this warped sense of uh, political culture that we have in this country that's really totally off kilter compared to most other countries in this, most other, you know, developed countries, for lack of a better term major countries, as Bernie says, uh, in the world. Mm -hmm. And so that's that's something where I think we need to kind of like 
find a better way to understand our own political culture. But yeah, the Bernie movement, I'm, I'm really not sure where it's going to go. I mean, I do sometimes like to make the, the comparison between Bernie Sanders and Bob LaFollette, who was kind of the original Bernie Sanders in the progressive era, right? Who kind of was advocating for a lot of structural changes, kind of like Bernie, you know, uh, Bob LaFollette was not successful in his quest for president. And he, you know, he was booted out in, in 1912 by uh, Theodore Roosevelt, who basically co-opted his platform and ran on that in 1912. But what happened in the long run was that the ideas that LaFollette kind of popularized, right, um, became more or less mainstream, right? And, and kind of he, he infiltrated kind of the, the political culture and he kind of set the terms of the debate or at least, you know, rectified them to an extent. And the, the issues that he would run on in, in the 1890s and early 1900s kind of became more center stage in the years to follow. And I think that's something that that we can credit Bernie with that he's doing. He's popularizing ideas that were seen as fringe, you know, some 20 years ago, but that kind of enter the mainstream now. And I think that's that's probably his biggest achievement. I totally agree on that. And I think it it also is like a place where we can have a lot of hope and be emboldened by the fact that even when we quote unquote lose elections, what really matters is the ideas that we're making uh, people have in the mainstream conversation more than, you know, what the actual like achievements are in a legislative sense. One of the things we're trying to do with this pod is sort of take ideas out of the usual rhetoric of left versus right and just make it about the ideas themselves, like if it's militarism or... I think the reason why we have such a hard time having constructive conversations around this stuff in this country is because everything is framed as partisan. Um, you can't... Like, if you if you say that you're on the left, then you must be anti-military. And if you're anti-military, then you must be against the troops and you must be like against freedom. And um, there's all of this sort of implication made as soon as you you claim a political identity. And it's so much, I think, more productive to just talk about like, what is militarism? What, what is racism? What is classism? To not even talk about left or right, just talk about pe- people and corporations and companies and, you know, the rich and the poor have you felt that that is, has been a, an approach that helps? And if so, you know, elaborate on that. I think, I think it does. I think focusing on issues is always the more productive approach. I think focusing on partisanship or, you know, like I said, for team sport mentalities uh, does not lead us anyway. It just hardens the, the, the lines. And of course, we need to differentiate, you know, who we talk about when we talk about left versus right and because, you know, the, the vast majority of, of Americans believes that the Democrats are the left and that they're like monolithically left versus right, liberal versus conservative, when liberal actually is the opposite of left, right? Liberal is like inherently right of center, uh, therefore does not constitute the left. I think, and this kind of ties in with the question before about Bernie, one of the things that Bernie did so well is talking about issues to people and meeting people where they are, right? And, and where the issues kind of um, relate to their own lived experience. And I think that's the only way forward in terms of having productive conversations with people, like what can we do to actually improve the conditions, to improve all of our lives beyond partisan rhetoric, right? So I, I think that that's, that's the way forward. Yeah, it's a big question. And then 
it's always challenging because we sort of do have these like linguistic containers for ideas and we need to sort of challenge what those are and define what they mean. But then there's also a point where that just kind of becomes almost its own cage where you can't break out of it to talk about the actual ideas. And I'm as guilty of this as anyone else because I'm always one of those people that's like, I'm left, not liberal. And I'll like go on a whole thing about, you know, explain, yeah, <laughs> explaining the difference to people. And some people will be like, okay, cool. And some people will be like, who cares? You, you just explained your ideas on things. That's all you need to explain. I think very often if you talk about the actual ideas, you would, you would find much more overlap with people. I mean, uh, mm-hmm. I, I talked to a colleague of mine who is, you know, considers himself a, a, a right winger and considers himself a uh, libertarian, although I call him a pseudo libertarian. But we agree basically, you know, 100 percent on issues such as militarism, funny enough. Right. So we both agree that in the endless wars, we need to, you know, have a, uh, you know, not such a militaristic culture um, and that we need to make sure that, you know, we don't produce generations of veterans just for the, the, the greed of American corporations and the, the war machine, right? So we agree 100% on that issue. So we can, we can come to one agreement there, even though our political philosophies are totally, you know, polar opposites in, in many ways. It really comes down to issue-based politics. If we had a, a proper, you know, functioning political system with, I don't know, uh, ranked choice voting or uh, you know, proportional representation, that would be a different story. We can have those conversations, right? But the, the, the first past the post kind of, you know, winner takes all, you know, system that we have right now does not really allow for those conversations. And it really mm-hmm. is like a straitjacket, like a political straitjacket that really confines us in our imaginations of what's possible. So I think we need to break that construct and, you know, think of something much better. Um, this clearly is not yeah. working. Yeah, it's like playing checkers instead of chess, essentially, is what we're doing. I'd love to hear a little bit about your thoughts on the Biden administration. That Washington Post piece you wrote was really interesting. I think I, I might have to clarify some issues there. I mean, uh, the, the piece itself was kind of born out of, uh, it's just an offshoot of, you know, research that I've been doing. And I just thought, hey, this this kind of rhymes, you know, this kind of uh, sounds familiar. So I might just write something on it. And it was very quick turnaround time. It was like within... 48 hours or so of me pitching it, the editors were saying, yeah, okay, we're good. Just do these edits and we're good. And uh, it was, but I just, I just feel like it could be misconstrued as, you know, me supporting Biden. (laughs) Yeah, I don't, I mean, I didn't misconstrue it that way. I mean, I think the left falls into the same trap sometimes that like liberal versus conservative does where everything that isn't just spelling everything out is somehow taking a stand positively for something or negatively for something maybe it's just human nature but it's so frustrating to me i'm like can't anyone just make a nuanced argument these days right right. why can't we have nuance what is wrong with nuance nuance is not is not mass friendly you can't market it you can't sell it it's not something that that works in our soundbite culture we need everything to be prefab you know quick 10 second bite and then uh, if you don't have time for nuance and to, to present something and like logically think it through, it's, it, it just doesn't appeal to the masses, right? Who have maybe a minute or so on the train on their way to work uh, to read an article or something. So, you, you know, they, they made me take out the word neoliberal for God's sake. You know, it's like, <laughs> seriously, I mean, you know. Crazy. Um, we were talking about Matt did a piece in the Washington Post recently. I think I sent it to you, the one about like how Joe Biden could still get some healthcare stuff passed and yeah no nuance is the enemy of advertisement and uh advertisement is what our news media 
relies on to stay <clears throat> in existence. So, yeah, nuance is not sexy. Our news media is over 90% corporate owned. So it's all about obviously selling and it's all about, you know, increasing exposure. And you know, so it's, once again, if we had a, you know, functioning system where, you know, you had like a, a more organic kind of, you know, news culture, it would be different. We could have different conversations, but in this kind of scenario, we're basically perpetuating the same message and we're looking at what sells and what's quick and what's digestible. It's basically information, fast food, right? It's, it's, that's what it mm-hmm. is. Yeah, it's completely um, against the idea of multiple truths. It doesn't. It doesn't really want anything other than mutual exclusivity. It has to be either or, not yes and. And that's how we end up with such a polarized culture where people can't look at an idea as being problematic but still generally good. Yeah, yeah, I, I would agree. No, no argument there. I mean, you know, it's, it literally is what what prevents us from, uh, you know, making smarter decisions, from you know, thinking things through. And uh, I don't know if you guys saw the documentary, the social dilemma, mm-hmm. and how you know, on on social media, how social media is now, you know, culprit in all of this as well. The perpetuation of this culture and actually exacerbates it even more. And it's it's really, I found it, you know, both eye opening and scary at the same time to see you know, how much our public discourse is now influenced by, you know, Facebook and, and advertising on Facebook and, you know, political messaging on Facebook and whatnot and how that has a knock-on effect. And, you know, and they were talking to insiders in, in the business and getting their take on it. And many of them actually had disconnected. They're no longer on social media and, you know, they don't want anything to do with it because they understand firsthand as, you know, the people who write the algorithms, how this works, how this appeals to people and how we are basically just, you know, information guinea pigs and you know how how little control we have over our public discourse well they have the privilege also of turning off social media which is a privilege these days because any anyone who doesn't have you know the kind of job that doesn't require some kind of social media presence you're basically you're tuning yourself out from most people in this in this country and I think that it's become this necessary evil and I think a lot of us want to tell ourselves that we can step away from it and it's not necessary like like health-wise we definitely can and should step away from it but practically speaking you know even when we try to post things about this this podcast on social media, it's like, what? You're trying to produce independent content? <laughs> no. But if you're not there, then you might as well not exist. So it's like, damned if you do, damned if you don't. And meanwhile, all of our previous forms of connectivity are eroding. <clears throat> and we don't have access to them anymore. Calling somebody on the phone is like an invasion of their privacy. And I say that as someone who feels very freaked out by someone calling me. <laughs> I share that though. I, I get multiple calls about car warranties and whatnot every day. So, you know, it's, it is an invasion of my privacy, honestly. <laughs> yeah. And there's definitely just the social media thing. I mean, I struggle trying to be like, how, what am I supposed to be doing on Twitter? There's just this pressure to kind of keep producing more and be out there. Although I do think sometimes there's the potential to at least seed some different ideas in social media, whether or not they get an audience or get receptive. I sometimes do see that as 
potentially a space of resistance because I really think one of the biggest things we can do right now is think differently and advocate for different ways of thinking about things not just even necessarily the ideas themselves but like how we approach reality with like some nuance and being okay with like multiple truths and being okay with like looking at issues and not specific narratives like I often think that that's like the most rebellious thing you can do right now no I would agree with that yeah one thing I keep forgetting to ask but I keep (laughs) wanting to ask all of our guests is what's something that gives you hope right now like or what's one actionable thing you've been doing to try to keep yourself hopeful and hope I find hope to be different from optimism as one of our great um, first guests said Eleanor Goldfield hope is not necessarily thinking things are going to be all right it's maybe thinking that things are not going to be all right but you know it's just what drives you and keeps you going yeah I don't that's that's hard to define I mean you know I kind of, you know, come down on the more pessimistic side if you if you want to nail me to it. But I think the fact that, you know, we've had this, you know, year or most of this year uh, in, this, in this pandemic and, you know, many of us are still here. I mean, yes, you know, many people have not been that fortunate, but many of us are still here. You know, at least me personally, speaking from my own you know, position of privilege, I still have a job. I still have my family. You know, um, I still have my health uh, and I'm privileged to work from home, right? I, I understand most people are not in that position or many people, I should say, are not in that position. So I, I understand, you know, how lucky I am and all of this. And that gives me some hope. And also as an historian, knowing that these pandemics happened before and we kind of got through it, even though people, you know, if you look at the 1918 pandemic, for example, were much more amenable to kind of, you know, putting on their masks and social distancing and whatnot, um, which seems to be less so today. I, I think there is hope, at least in the short run. In the longer run, I don't know. And I'm not sure that I, I, I kind of want to distinguish between like, you know, situational hope and, and, and kind of more structural hope. Structurally speaking, I'm totally disillusioned. I don't think we're going to make any progress anytime soon yeah. because we're just using the wrong tools to kind of, you know, mediate the, the, you know, the things that are inherently wrong. But uh, situational in this in this kind of moment in this context, I think that you know there are some things to you know look towards, and and you know I think it's it's personal for for everyone being able to do what I like, what I enjoy, you know, for a living more or less, sometimes less than more, um, is probably something that gives me hope. Uh, my family is always a source of strength for me, so this is uh, it's awesome as long as I have done them, I'm fine. I don't know. That, that's really it. I mean, you know, I, I never needed much in, in the sense of, you know, things that pull me up. I, I can do that by myself, but um, it gets more and more difficult in this moment that we're in. And I understand that, you know, that's, that's a different situation for everyone. And uh, when you see 3000 people a day die from, from this disease that, you know, makes you think, right. It really, you know, shakes you to your core and you think, and how are we going to get through this? But I think you just have to yeah. somehow. Well, and that's, that you're sort of tapped into the collective memory of history and what you do and being able to draw on that and bring that to light, I think is a really, it's important work. I mean, just, I want to just appreciate all of the perspective you're bringing. I think the more we can pay attention to history as, you know, a living, a living thing that we're studying that is, um, you know, not as mysterious as we like to make it, you know, life is not as unpredictable as we like to believe and time isn't as linear as we would like to think it is. (laughs) Hint, it's not, you know, 
And it's, I think, important to be reminded of all the ways that sort of manifest. So thank you. Well, thank you guys for having me. Thank you for, uh, you know, having me on the show and, and, and you know, giving me this, this, you know, this opportunity to share my perspectives with you. But yeah, I think it's important to cultivate different approaches to learning history, to understanding history and to, you know, to understanding that time is not linear, as you said, and, and nothing is kind of set in stone. And there's no such thing as, you know, um, things that are preset for you. Everything is kind of, you know, in flux. And um, but history does rhyme, right? It doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. And uh, it's important to listen to those rhymes and rhythms and vibe with them and see what we can take from that. I love that so much. Oh my God, you just spoke to my songwriter heart so hard. Thank you so much. No, thank you. You might think this tactic is a little bit misguided and that your loyal citizen will certainly deride it. But just say it's liberation for their own protection. And while they're all protesting, we will bomb, 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 bomb those countries. I work on like my NPR vocals. I do notice I do the thing where I go up at the end of a sentence, but... Like that? Yeah. I think a lot of women do that, though, so... Yeah, I think we've had this conversation before, because, like, I, I had it kind of trained out of me in the Army. They were like, you will always sound like you know what you're talking about, even if you don't. And I was like, of course I will. <laughs> I, I already knew that. Yeah. They're like, you're just <laughs> confirming so... what I already knew that I knew. But it was funny because they were just like, fake it till you make it. And I was like, cool, I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about, but roger that. So, you know, now, even when I don't know what I'm talking about, it sounds like I'm speaking authoritatively on it. I'm just like, I'm so sorry. Like, this is not on purpose. I feel like, yeah, I have the opposite problem that even when I'm talking authoritatively on something, I, I think it's just my life path being so different from yours, like going in academia, like a lot of women, we naturally have imposter syndrome. I think a lot of people in academia actually have imposter syndrome regardless of gender. But um, yeah, sense. I definitely have trouble presenting myself authoritatively, even if I like know what the fuck I'm talking about. So yeah, I think it just, uh, interestingly, I think it, we both have had um, kind of different ends of the spectrum of responses to like an authoritarian system which is that you know you kind of learned how to work within it and I was like nope 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 not gonna not not gonna unless I have to for a minute and then I will but I won't like it <laughs> yeah I think it's yeah like we've said I think it's good having the two energies on this pod and also I could stand to learn a little bit more from you, and I'm trying to be a little more um, ballsy with what I put out there and speak with a little more authority. Because I do fucking know what I'm talking about. I don't know why I... Goddamn right you do. I don't know why I'm like, try to be nice to people and act like I don't know what I'm talking about. It's like, fuck that. I think that's another conditioned thing. You know, a lot of times people... I'm not even going to binary this. I'm going to say people are intimidated by intelligent women who uh, aren't afraid to act like they know what they're talking about. It's unfortunate conditioning. I think it's part of why it's so hard for, uh, <laughs> for us to retain history 
that is uh, passed down by women in this culture that we've got as opposed to, you know, for example, many of the indigenous tribes that uh, have been here for a longer time. They pass down stories and leadership through women more than through, you know, the patriarchal lens. Yeah, totally. Or me being like a little bit woo, I'm like, oh, yeah, it's all about, you know, the different energies you embody, which is super vague sounding. But I think it's an interesting idea to think about how these things are kind of bigger archetypes that we've sort of tied to gender, but they're actually like Mm -hmm. way bigger than just physical human gender, which is not necessarily binary either. So... Well, energy is real and it's non-binary. I mean, all of life is energy waves, right? When it comes down to it. So yeah, I feel like it makes complete sense that, you know, different energies interact with each other in different ways. And also like we have all those things in ourselves. Like we have, you know, the most toxic things about humanity and the best things about humanity. Exactly. Exactly. Um, I was just talking with my uh, upstairs neighbor about this, who's kind of setting up an uh, an energy, energetic coaching practice and working with the, the inner child and the whole self experience. And uh, we were just talking about how, you know, all of the answers to, you know, the best ways to live our lives are really, they all exist within our completely like multiplicitous selves. And instead of acknowledging that and examining it, we're just like, nope, self, you're going to be this way or that way and that way and this way. And that's what I've decided. And that's what you are. Don't ever be different from that. Or I will freak out. Right. (laughs) And so much of that is, you know, cultural and social conditioning or even conditioning by our economic system that we're, I feel like all collectively trying to unlearn right now. Some, mm-hmm. I mean, some people are more interested in that unlearning and relearning than others, but. Um, yeah. Some people are more interested in acknowledging that there are things to unlearn at all. And some people are less interested. Yeah. I mean, for example, today, we may end up cutting this out because I don't know how much I want to give them publicity, but there's that whole situation with that restaurant in Lyons, mm-hmm. and they had, like, a freedom rally today. So silly. I know. Apparently, there were, it only looked like maybe a couple dozen people showed up. Um, it really is so sad, though. People have been pushed to see a public health issue as a political issue and endanger each other based on like logic that is easily proven to be completely full of holes. Yeah. I really wonder if other countries have any kind of anti-masker movements. Maybe they do. Van Morrison just released like an anti-mask song, which is really weird. Did I tell you about this? Wow, I don't know that you did. Oh, Van Morrison. It's super jazzy and like Van Morrison y <laughs> sounding, but it's something about, you know, like resisting like the fascist lockdown. So 
And it's like the fascists are not, they don't want the lockdown. I wish that, like, I don't understand why more people aren't paying attention to the fact that the fascists were completely down to keep everything open. <laughs> the only reason I can understand as to why people are rationalizing a mask as a restriction on their freedom is because they personally do not want to wear a mask because it's annoying. And that's it. Like, that, that's it. It's annoying. It doesn't keep us from breathing. It doesn't keep us from eating in our own home or, like, even on the street. Like, I can walk down the street and, like, drink a beverage and put my mask back on. It's totally fine. It's not hard. We wear scarves, you know? <laughs> like, we have accessories we wear all year round to keep us safe. Like, we wear hats when it's cold. We wear a mask when it's pandemic. <laughs> like, <laughs> why is it so hard? I don't get it. And, like, as someone with glasses, like, I get that the masks are annoying. Today I was um, in this, like, perpetual struggle running errands with trying to get the mask on my face while also not steaming up my glasses. Yeah, that is a trick. But I still wore the damn mask, I mean, because I don't mm -hmm. want to get sick either. Yeah, it's so weird how that's become politicized. Like, I can understand critiquing, like, especially considering that our government was basically like, okay, you have to shut down, but there's no help for businesses or people. Right. And the only reason they shut down at all was because it was becoming impossible to keep business running as usual. That was it. Because people were getting sick. Now more people are sick than ever, but it seems like... It has kind of fallen to, like, this personal shaming of, like, you people just need to do, like, behave this way, and then the pandemic will go away. And it's kind of like, um, I don't know if it's quite that simple, but, yeah, it would help if people just wore a damn mask and social distance. I mean, it's part of what we're talking about, you know, in our conversation with Matt, as far as, like, if people don't know the history of, like, what happens during a pandemic... They don't have a frame of reference like this is how we deal with it and this is how humans have dealt with these things for a long time. It's not new. It's not ex an excessive, you know, overreach of, you know, government power. And also please notice that the government is not doing anything to keep you safe. So like listen to the doctors. <laughs> Yeah, it is. I love that how he put it, like history rhymes, you know, like you can go back and yeah. find those patterns and those rhythms and things in history to learn from. And I know we've talked about this before on the podcast, but it just it's a continual source of frustration to me that in this country, especially we are so either willfully ignorant or by design are just kept from our own history to the point where we don't seem to even have any interest in understanding it. Like, the people having the rally say had all these signs up about, like, tyranny and all this stuff, and I'm like, y'all are flying Blue Lives Matter flags a few months ago, so... Right, like, who is tyrannying you? Like, close a, bus close a business is not someone coming in and breaking in your home with... breaking into your home with weapons and uniforms, speaking a language you don't speak... For example, because that's what we did uh, in Iraq and, Af and Afghanistan and, like, everywhere else that we invade. You know, that's tyranny. 
that, you know, being chased down in the streets when you go out to a protest police brutality, that's tyranny. But, you know, having having the directive given to shut down your business to save people's lives is, you know, I, I guess I get how people really because there's no financial safety net people are just desperate and instead of turning against the government that everyone wants to believe is somehow smarter than this and less evil than this it's I, I, they I, I don't I don't know. Like, there's so much, there's so much contradictory logic, quote unquote logic, that has to be exist in someone's brain to make, make it make sense to not take precautions during a pandemic. And another layer to this whole thing with this business and lions is like, they were warned multiple times about like not following the protocols before they got shut down. Like, they had plenty of chances to just do what was right. But then these are the same people that will, like, praise, like, cops and stuff. Except now they don't like the cops because the cops are after them. And Well, that's their whole thing, yeah. They will love the uniform and the, the power, but they don't love it when it's directed at oppressing them. And that's, like, the whole thing that where they don't make the connection, like... By fighting against oppressors, we're fighting against people who oppress everyone. Yeah, you, you think they'd make... And that was something I was saying to Josh, was like, you think those people would make some connection between, like, maybe this... If what you experienced felt, like, shitty and oppressive to you, and I would argue that it wasn't, but, you know, like, that was your experience. Maybe you could have some empathy towards people that are literally get shot for walking down the street being black. Mm-hmm. I mean, you would think that that exactly. would maybe help you make some, connect some dots, but no. Apparently, at the rally today, they had some guest speaker from Texas who was talking about hanging wow. people in wow. <laughs> so. That is, I mean, that, and that has been there. We know that, you know, when I lived there, I saw it, and it's, Unfortunately, people are conditioned to blame other poor people for their poverty and their oppression. And uh, it's convincing because the people who have the money are investing that money and keeping them convinced. So. And it's again goes back to like so much of what Matt was saying about history and how we don't study it, you know, like how we don't look to it as something that can clue us into why things are the way they are. Right, because like when we do back up and zoom out and look at it, it's like, oh, it's basically power, greed, you know, just human issues, human insecurity and human failure to communicate that, that creates like all of the conflict and it's not some, like, divine system that has gone wrong. It's a completely human system built on, you know, selfishness and acquisition of wealth and power. And that's, it's being what it is. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's like, I mean, I know we're kind of bagging on right-wing people here, but, like, 
liberals are guilty of this too. I mean, the way I they know. act. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. This like, kind of thing is nonpartisan. You know? I feel like the being clued out, it just depends on like, I feel like the type of clued out that we are depends on the type of privilege we have. And, uh, it's, if we are interested in communicating across class divides and across privilege divides, which, you know, I'm talking to myself as well, like, it's important to, you know, figure out the ways where we, where we intersect and, uh, and, you know, and not, uh, not just in the broke ways, but like in the human condition ways of like, things we're all actually trying to accomplish here yeah instead of just living in this country where it feels like people are just perpetually in a goldfish bowl and they're just constantly being surprised by everything that happens when I watched Finding Nemo I feel like it was when I was babysitting at some point and years ago when that came out and um and I remember how like you know everyone wants to like relate to the protagonist in all those movies right like Nemo but most of us are Dory. Like, most of us are, like, just keep swimming, just keep swimming. Whoa, what's that? You know, like, that's that's most of us. We're just the nation anyway. of Dory. <laughs> yeah. And then I just keep thinking about how Dory is voiced by Ellen DeGeneres, which adds a whole other sure. layer, layer to the, the metaphor. Seriously, I mean, I don't really like to focus on celebrity doings or whatever, but, like, it's a very, it's an interesting thing, like the kind of ways that even women play into the patriarchal, like power struggle that this system forces us all into and like makes us act out the most, most toxic of the masculinities and most toxic of the femininities. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, and like, I mean, her kind of thing is interesting, too, because it intersects, I think, with so much of, like, what I see, um, the behavior I see from liberals, where they can actually be quite abusive and not nice, but then they're willing to, you know, redeem George W. Bush, because he's literally not Donald Trump. Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's just about, like, who's better at performing social appropriateness or who thinks that they need to. You know, I think celebrities, certain celebrities are very good at performative um, social appropriateness because they don't want to fall out of public approval, and so they do the thing. But, like, meanwhile, you know, <laughs> they're they're just as, uh, as prejudiced and as conditioned as anybody else. So they get this, you know platform and they just showcase their humanity basically the way like the blue team and the red team play into the patriarchal game is you know they just have two different sets of tactics and strategies to get to the same you know end goal of you know having more power yeah I feel like it's a point that like I wish I didn't have to keep making it over and over again <laughs> because I don't know why it's so hard for some people to break out of this like party binary and see that it's not even really attached to anything material. It's literally just about a brand. 
and a team that you're rooting for. Yeah, it is. Well, and that's exactly what it is. It's like our culture has been conditioned to want to have a team to root for. And so when we have a party binary, we have a team. And we don't have to, like, think about what each of the players on that team are doing. Although we do know more about what our sports ball players are doing usually in their day-to-day than we do about our politicians. Yeah, and I think Matt made a lot of good points about, you know, watching what people actually do and sort of how you break out of that binary and just the rightward drift of our politics and how we, you know, like someone like Bernie was seen as radical, but in the rest of the world, Bernie's a centrist. Well, we're also given this narrative that thinking is not cool. Uh, Critical thinking is not sexy at all. Uh, And the idea that there's no use for the binary or that the binary isn't attached to anything would mean that we would have to then like decide for ourselves using nuance and, you know, actual intentional focused thought what what's true and what's not and that is more than a lot of us have time for because our system keeps us struggling to survive yeah and that's a good point is there is a certain amount of privilege in being able able to ask those critical questions and try to dig a little deeper than the surface level um that's another thing i really appreciate about the work matt does is that he writes you know for different outlets that aren't just academic so he you know, creates a very, like, accessible way to access his work, which I think is something, like, in general, academics need to do a better job of, so I appreciate that he's doing that. Um, But, yeah, I think that just any of those little chances you can take to try to take a step back and just engage with things on a deeper level than this very limited narrative we've been told is what reality is, is right. I, it, it is resistance. I think it's a more meaningful resistance than, I don't know, tweeting about Donald Trump all day. Yeah, I feel like he's really not worth any of our energy. And we, uh, but the fact that we give it to him says a lot about, like, we would rather focus on, on, on atrocity than on actually solving the things that we can solve. And I I don't know if that's a conditioning thing or if that's, like, some piece of our evolution that makes us, like, resist doing simple things that could make our lives collectively and individually so much better. That, that's a big question, man. I don't know. You know, it seems like such a product of our culture, but maybe it's a product of human nature. Again, it comes back to, like, studying history and seeing where things rhyme and where we can maybe try to break out of the rhyming scheme, you know. And it's like we should be allowed a certain quality of life just for being human beings. Like, it shouldn't be come with all these conditions, you know. And by quality of life, I mean, you know, basic needs met, freedom, and maybe some happiness if you're lucky. Nothing fancy. Our you know, ancestors had to work for those things. And we walk around like, there should be food for me. There should be water. And yes, if there, if water exists, it should be available, you know, but the whole idea of like, we just have it so much easier 
than early people did. And our evolutionary state is that we, like, don't recognize that most of the time. I don't... It's so strange. But again, we forget history. We forget to... We forget to listen for the rhymes. Yeah, totally. And we somehow are, like, rhyming ourselves to death, even though we have all these tools available to us. Oh, my God. We're, like, shitty commercial jingles. That's what we're doing. We're over. Yeah, it's like y'all could be writing some fucking Shakespeare or Leonard Cohen lyrics, but no. Yeah, we're sticking with like advertising jingles, and uh, that is that's basically where we're calling it good. Uh, hope. co-hosted, edited, and produced by Sarah Baranowskis and Emily Yates. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you will return with all of your friends in tow and, uh, you know, keep hanging out with us as we weather the apocalypse together. See you next time.